Matthew chapter 27, reading from verse 32. I'm going to read in the New English Bible. From verse 32. Then they led him away to be crucified. On their way out they met a man from Cyrene, Simon by name, and pressed him into service to carry his cloth. So they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and there they offered him a draught of wine mixed with gall, but when he had tasted it he would not drink. After fastening him to the cross, They divided his clothes among them by casting lots and then sat down there to keep watch. Over his head was placed the inscription giving the charge, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. The passers-by hurled abuse at him. They wagged their heads and cried, You would pull the temple down, would you, and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself, if you are indeed the Son of God. So too the chief priests with the lawyers and elders mocked at him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself, King of Israel indeed. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe him. Did he trust in God? Let God rescue him if he wants him, for he said he was God's son. Even the bandits who were crucified with him taunted him in the same way. Darkness fell over the whole land from midday until three in the afternoon. And about three, Jesus cried aloud, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthane, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of the bystanders on hearing this said, he is calling Elijah. One of them ran at once and fetched a sponge which he soaked in sour wine and held it to his lips on the end of a cane. But the others said, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus again gave a loud cry and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was an earthquake. The rocks split and the graves opened. And Many of God's people arose from sleep and coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they entered the holy city where many saw them. And when the centurion and his men who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and all that was happening, They were filled with awe, and they said, Truly, this man was a son of God. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32. (coughs) When we come... To these few verses, 
And there are, in fact, if I am right, from verse 32 to verse 36, only 24 verses. When we come to these 24 verses, we have reached the focal point of the whole Bible. We are not dealing with something which is secondary or even vital, but not fundamental. We are dealing with the fundamental and central fact of the gospel which we preach. Christ crucified. Upon these few hours, the whole history of God's people centered and much of the prophecy the types and the figures of the Old Testament were fulfilled in these few hours as we have looked into the first book of the New Testament Matthew we have seen God's King the Messiah slowly unveiled before our eyes. We have seen his birth. We have seen his anointing. We have seen his testing. We have seen his ministry. We have seen his transfiguration in glory. And through it all, we have beheld his inherent majesty and glory. We have recognized that here is one who is absolutely and intrinsically worthy to be king. We have also seen him approaching his life work. For his life work was not his ministry. We have seen him approaching his life work. We have seen his anguish in the garden as he faced the cost of it. And we have seen his absolute triumph when he came out of that garden, the battle already won and the issues settled. Father, thy will be done. We have watched his betrayal. We have watched his forsakenness and his loneliness as one by one everyone has fallen away from him, denied him. We have seen his judgment first before God's ancient chosen people, when he came to his own and they that were his own received him not, but rejected him finally and fully. We have seen him before the Roman governor, before imperial Rome, and we have seen imperial Rome uh, ratify the judgment and verdict of the Sanhedrin. Through it all, 
he has been steadily moving onward to this one point in time, Calvary. Now that point has finally arrived. All through his life, and indeed we could say in one sense, that the whole of the Old Testament from the Garden of Eden has been steadily, inexorably, moving forward and onward to this one point in time. Now it has arrived. Six hours in which God accomplished the salvation of the world. For most of you today, you have been at work nearer to eight hours. It was from nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon that the Lord accomplished, entered and accomplished his life work. In these six dread hours, God the Son, the King, the Messiah that we have beheld unveiled before our eyes became the Redeemer and the Saviour of us all. It is his life work that we now see this evening. The work of our salvation. We have seen him face it in the garden. We have seen him facing it at his trials. Now we see him enter into it and finish it. The agony involved, the cost in procuring a uh, our salvation, the method by which he, in suffering for us all, saved us, we shall never be able to understand. Let me say that again. The agony that was involved in this life work of our Lord Jesus Christ, this work of our salvation, the, um, the, the cost of actually procuring it for us. The method, oh I hate that word when used of the work of our Lord Jesus, but you understand what I mean. The method by which in his suffering he saved us all. We shall never ever be able to understand fully. We can only recognize the facts and blessedly experience the truth of it all. For we are touching something here this evening infinite in its comprehension. It is entirely beyond the best of us. Let no one think that he or she can master these verses. 
Let no one think that he or she can master this subject. It is not to be mastered. It is a mystery. It is to be recognized. <coughs> For while we watch all that outwardly happened in those hours on the cross, all that was really taking place was in the unseen. In a very real sense, the king passes out of our sight and we have to leave him as he goes forward utterly alone. Now, I want to underline that because I think there are some people who think that they can somehow get on top of this matter and sort of ferret it all out and get it all defined and somehow or other in the end understand. You never will. When you have, as it were, defined everything you can, when you have explored all the details, when you have inquired into all the facts, you are up against a divine mystery <coughs> which is infinite in its comprehension. It is wholly noteworthy that all four gospel writers show a marked reticence when it comes to the record of the crucifixion. I say that is a holy, noteworthy fact. None of them dwell on its gruesome nature, nor on the terrible physical ordeal and torture that was involved in dying such a death. One marvels, knowing the East, as we do, that uh, these writers showed such extraordinary reticence. It is as if all of them realize, without exception, all of them realize that as in days of old a thorn bush burned with the fire of God's presence, so here that terrible and bloody stake burned with the mystery of God's presence. It was God grappling with Satan in the dark. It was God who was dealing with sin, the root problem of this world's history of sorrow and bloodshed and emptiness. It was God who was doing a work by which he could open up the kingdom of heaven to every sinful man and woman in this world. It was God who was in that human form upon that stake. God suffering. God suffering 
speaking. God dying. Therefore you and I are face to face with the greatest paradox in history. How does God die? This is the very hymns that you've been singing. The immortal dies. The impassive suffers. You are face to face with the divine mystery. For the gospel writers, all four of them, Calvary was holy ground to be approached with unshod feet and worshipping hearts. Not something that we could, as it were, dangle in front of people or dwell upon in a morbid way. But something... <coughs> in which, as I've said, the very fire of the presence of God burned. Nevertheless, having said that, we must also say this, that nearly all those who lived in New Testament days had actually witnessed a crucifixion. All such executions took place in public, as indeed they still do in many parts of the East. And a very few of the people who lived in New Testament times had not witnessed a number of crucifixions because they always were uh, in uh, public places, so uh, the, the, the most uh, frequented parts um, of a highway. They were therefore all well acquainted with the facts and did not need to be reminded of them in any way at all. And indeed to have dwelt upon those physical facts would have only drawn people away from the real meaning of what happened uh, on the cross. It is therefore as well for us to, be, uh, to, to understand a little of what crucifixion meant. We are not going to dwell on it, but I am very simply just going to tell you what it involved. The Greek word translated cross, which you will find in verse 32, they compelled to carry his cross, and its verb derived from it, which you find in um, verse 35, there they crucified him. This word originally denoted an upright beam or stake to which the, a condemned person was tied or nailed for execution. Apart from the simple upright stake, there were a number of variations. There was what is called St. Anthony's cross, shaped like the letter T. There was also another variation which we call the St. Andrew's cross which is shaped in the letter X, like the letter X. And then there was the other, with a few variations, which is the traditional cross that we all know, which is called the Latin cross. From the inscription above Christ's head, in verse 37, 
where it says, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, and from age-old tradition, which is quite unanimous on this point, Christ, it seems, was crucified on the latter form of the cross, the Latin cross, in other words, the traditional kind. Crucifixion was an old and widely practiced Gentile form of execution, although it was held in abhorrence by the Jews. In Roman times, it was the universally practiced way of execution for provincials, for slaves, and for the lower classes. Now, that's why um, when Paul later comes to write one of his letters, he says in uh, Philippians and chapter 2, these are the words he uses, he says of our Lord Jesus, verse 6, who existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave. Now the Lord Jesus was never a bond slave. But Paul says he took the form of a bond slave. Then he goes on, being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the slave's way of execution, in other words. He wasn't uh, uh, beheaded, uh, but he was, uh, uh, which was, uh, as it were, kept for Roman citizens of our higher classes, but he was crucified. Um, amongst the Jews, a person's body was only ever nailed to a tree or to a stake after they had been executed by stoning. And it was done as a warning to everyone. It was reserved especially for those who were guilty of blasphemy and idolatry. Uh, you find that again in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and uh, verse 22. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt surely bury him the same day. For he that is hanged is, is accursed of God, that thou defile not thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Paul, later writing to the Galatians, tells us in Galatians and chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So the Jews never ever crucified a living person. They only ever hung the body up after it had been executed by stoning. This was one of the reasons why they wanted Christ crucified, uh, um, executed by the Romans. Because they, they, as you know, they charged him with blasphemy and they wanted to see him um, uh, crucified. Normally, after the death sentence had been passed and signed, the victim was flogged. Then he carried the cross beam, not the whole cross, only the cross beam, um, uh, to the place of execution, always outside the city because of defilement within. 
um, around his neck or carried by a man in front was a placard upon which was written clearly and legibly the charge upon which he had been sentenced to death. On arrival at the execution ground, the condemned man was normally given in Judea a kind of anesthetic in the form of a drugged wine. This was provided by a, an association of Jewish women who believed in good works. And they used to give all those uh, crucified in Judea um, this um, uh, uh, sort of uh, a slight form of anesthetic. The condemned man was then stripped naked, made to lie down with arms outstretched on the cross beam, and his hands were then nailed to it through the palms by long, sharp nails. The cross beam was then lifted by means of ropes and secured to the upright state which was already in position. Finally, the feet were nailed to the upright, either separately or with one nail through both feet. There was no such thing as a footrest, as you sometimes see in old uh, pictures. The only support was a peg, the lower part of the cross, upon which the victim sat astride. It was a very painful thing, but it, all it did was it managed uh, to um, hold uh, the weight of the person and prevent their hands being torn away from the cross beam. When finally in position, the victim's feet were no more than 18 inches off the ground. Now, this is a big point. Most people imagine that when the Lord was crucified, he was a long way up there. He wasn't. His feet were only at least not more than this chair, the height of your chair above the ground, if that. Therefore, his head was only just there, that's all. This explains why the Lord could talk quietly to John about his mother in the midst of all that babble of raucous voices. It also explains the full horror, the full horror comes home to us of all that taunting, blasphemous crowd. They were, it wasn't as if he was even a distance from them. They could look into his eyes. They were near enough to touch him. They only had to look up there. So all those things that they shouted at him, they were, they were as if they were just speaking to him. The only thing was that they now knew he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. He couldn't do anything. I think that is something that we need to understand. Death by crucifixion, and this is the thing we're not going to dwell on, was a very long and terrible ordeal. A person seldom died under 36 hours. And it has been known in some cases for people to live as long as eight days. For this reason, the victim's legs were broken by a club or a hammer because under Jewish law no one was permitted to be left hanging overnight. They must be buried the same night. So they used to go round the soldiers and break with a, a hammer or a club the legs of the uh, victims um, to hasten death. 
in order to hasten death. And the shock from breaking the person's legs normally, normally resulted in death. Where was Christ crucified? We are told at a place called Golgotha in Hebrew or Calvaria from which we get our word Calvary in Latin. Both mean skull. You find it in verse uh, um, 33 when they came to a place called Golgotha which means skull. We cannot, however, now identify this spot with any certainty at all. It was outside the walls of Jerusalem, we do know that. It was very near to the city, we do know that. And we know that it was beside a public highway. The fourth thing we do know is that a garden was in the same place as the cross. Now we get this, if you like to turn to it swiftly, in Matthew chapter 27 verse 31 and 32 where we read this um, and they put on him his garments and led him away to crucify him and as they came out we understand that to mean as they came out from the city uh, if you turn to John chapter 19 John chapter 19 Verse 17, we read, They took Jesus therefore, and he went out bearing the cross for himself. If you look at verse 20, it says, This title therefore read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was outside the city, but nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. Uh, verse 41 of the same uh, chapter. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb wherein was never um, a man yet laid. Well, those are the only facts we know um, about um, uh, uh, Golgotha. Uh, it was outside Jerusalem, outside the then walls of the city. It was very near to the city. There, it was near a public highway because we're told of all the passers-by who wagged their heads and sort of said things. And uh, there was a garden uh, in the same place. Tourists are shown at least two sites uh, for the crucifixion of the Lord uh, Jesus. Well now, so much for what we might call the technical shout. To this place of death, so aptly called Skull Hill, guarded by soldiers, Christ slowly and painfully began to walk, bearing the great crossbeam on his lacerated shoulders. Around his neck hung the placard with the charge proclaimed against him, written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Somewhere near the city gate, he faltered and fell. We don't know how many times. 
He had suffered hours of interrogation, hours of indignities, hours of brutal mockery and ill-treatment. He had eaten nothing and drank nothing since the Passover meal the evening before. Something had gone out of him physically in the Garden of Gethsemane which never came back to him. He had been so weakened by the flogging that the soldiers had had to dress him. It was clear that he could not carry the cross a step further. There was a passerby called Simon, a man from North Africa, a place in Libya now, Cyrene. And him the uh, centurion compelled to carry Christ's cross. Tradition tells us that Simon was a Nubian and that he was black as coal. So much for tradition. What we do know is this, that his carrying of the cross of Christ changed his life. Mark tells us in Mark 15, and uh, verse um, 21, Mark 15, and verse 21, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Evidently, both Simon's sons, we don't know what happened to him. Some have identified him with Simeon uh, at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. We're not sure about that. But what we do know is that his two sons became well-known Christians. When they reached Golgotha, they offered Christ the drugged wine. He refused it, preferring to face the whole ordeal with his faculties unimpaired and fully conscious. Verse 34. You'll see there, they offered him wine to drink mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. They stripped him of his clothing, and with all of his senses unimpaired, they nailed him to the crossbeam. It was then hauled into position onto the upright stake. Two criminals were crucified, one on either side of him. Got that in verse 38. It was about nine o'clock in the morning when God's King, the Messiah, was crucified and began his life work. He had uttered only one sentence whilst being nailed to the crossbeam. And that is recorded not by Matthew, but by Luke in chapter three, 23, verse 34, when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was holy in keeping with his name, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, and with his character, and with his word. 
The scene which is presented to our gaze is a terrible one. At its center, we have the dying form of God's king. Above his head, we have the placard nailed to the stake. In profound simplicity, stating the truth. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Crouched around the cross, just around here, so not a great scene, just around here it would be with the cross here, were the soldiers, hardened men, casting lots for his clothing which had just been stripped from him. Absolutely oblivious to the awful and infinite suffering that was within touching distance of them all. The passers-by, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and even the two dying criminals all combined to produce a, a babble of raucous and brutal voices, taunting and deriding Christ. Luke tells us that even the soldiers joined in this um, babble of uh, voices. The dominant note in their mockery we find in verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now you will see that in verse 41 it says, So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 44, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In other words, the dominant note in all their mockery was, If! You are the Son of God. Show it. If you are God's Son, come down. Now, the way Matthew presents to us just a few snippets from the crowd's comments and so on is very interesting. He says that the passers-by derided him or as the New English Bible puts it, hurled abuse at him, wagging their heads. J.B. Phillips puts, shaking their heads knowingly. You know, and, and it is in fact Psalm 22 that gives us the perfect, they, they shot out the lip and wagged the head. You know, <laughs> you, you fraud. You fraud. You're caught now. You're caught now. If you are the Son of God, come down. It was a knowing shaking of the head. You know, kind of, well, they've got you. They've got you at last. It's caught up with you now. Now it's clear that you're a fraud. You've got the same thing again with the chief priests when they made sport of him, saying he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. One great divine said that was the supreme irony of history. He saved others himself. He cannot save. Think about it. 
it came from the lips of apostate priests. And yet there was nothing true. Once more they were prophesying like Balaam's ass. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Go on, listen what they say. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. If he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Sport. Now you must remember that we have just these few little snippets of a kind of mockery and jesting and uh, derision that went on for three long hours. Matthew only tells us a little. He dwells more upon what the crowd has said. No angel now appeared to strengthen Christ. Heaven stood further and further and further back, as if it was withdrawing all the time, as all hell was let loose. As Satan edged in more and more and more for the kill, so God forsook his son and left him to Satan. In the midst of all that, Christ did two things which are not recorded for us by Matthew, but are recorded by the other writers. The first thing he did was to provide for his mother which you will find in John chapter 19 from verse 25 to 27. And the second thing he did was to save one of the two dying thieves. It was in the midst of this that he did these two things. At midday, the sun's light failed. Now it was a natural phenomenon, yet it cannot be explained naturally. For there was no such thing as an eclipse at that time. It was full moon because it was Passover. So we had no real explanation of what happened except that it was evidently something natural and yet it was supernatural. The sun's light failed and <coughs> darkness came over the whole countryside from 12 o'clock midday till 3 o'clock. lasted three hours. We've got that in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It, um, it seems that this darkness uh, succeeded in stopping the mockery and produced a very superstitious fear instead. You've got that a bit later, how all the spectators are obviously bystanders all become hushed. And when they hear the Lord cry out aloud, one says, he's calling for Elijah. Quick, someone, give him something to drink. Let's see if Elijah's going to come. 
Someone else says, don't, don't, wait. If you don't give him anything to drink, perhaps Elijah will be forced to come and help him. Evidently something now so extraordinary, so remarkable, was happening before their eyes that the mockery had all been uh, 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 stopped. And instead, the whole crowd were conscious that something extraordinary was happening. Matthew does not attempt to, e to explain the darkness. He only states the facts. He does give us a clue, however, when he tells us that at about three o'clock in the afternoon, the gloom was suddenly pierced by a loud and terrible cry. We've got it in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Hush spectators did not understand what uh, uh, it was at all. No one did, not even John and the Lord's mother or the other women. Now John and the Lord's mother and some of them had been very near to the cross. They'd been right up here. And the Lord had spoken quietly to John about his mother and her future. They had then evidently retired to quite a distance where we're told they watched from a great way off. No one understood that cry at the time. And uh, I do not believe that we shall ever fully understand it either. All we know is this, that out of the depth of an infinite anguish and suffering beyond all human conception or comprehension, came the most fearful words this universe has ever heard. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, what was it that occasioned this cry? Certainly it wasn't the physical or mental suffering, terrible as that was. Why did Christ suddenly, after three hours of gloom, loudly cry, and Moffat says, he screamed. No modern translator I see likes to put it like that. It seems almost irreverent. He screamed. was torn out of the depths of his being. Something so terrible that it wrung that cry out of his heart, whether he liked it or not. My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Now what was it? My dear friend, that cry is the only clue we have to what happened on Calvary. Father, forgive them, could have been a heroic martyr's death. Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, could have been the words of a noble character. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, could have been the words 
of a very loving man to comfort another in his last moments. I thirst like the words of a little boy. I've often thought that those words are the most human words in the whole Bible. I thirst. But they could just be a man who in his last extremity has become like a little child again, helpless. It is finished. We could ex understand that to mean that his life was finished. But I say this cry, this fearful and awful cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is the one clue we have to what happened on the Calvary. What was it that occasioned? As I've said, certainly it wasn't the mental and physical suffering that the Lord Jesus went through. It was the mysterious being forsaken by God when he, the sinless one, be, was made sin for us. Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was surely when the Lamb, bearing away the sin of the world, became the serpent lifted up. The lamb became the serpent. The mystery of it. When the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, withdrawing from him, struck him. When all the fury and wrath of God fell in judgment upon our sin and consumed him. Let us never forget that when Christ suffered for our sins, he suffered infinitely. People sometimes wonder, how can we all be forgiven? For the, word, the law of God says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, one man's life for one man's life. Then surely we are asked, if Christ died, he can only surely win for one person. How can six hours of suffering win for millions and millions and millions of people their salvation? How could six hours of suffering somehow cancel out the penalty of sin? How is that possible? We are asked, not once, but many times. We have to remember that when Christ suffered, he suffered infinitely. For he was not only man, but God. He suffered in the place of every sinner and somehow it was compressed into six hours. He bore the judgment that fell on that 
sin for every single one in six hours. How can we put it? It is impossible to put it into words. All we can say is that he suffered a million times. And he died a million, million, million deaths. That's the only way we can put it. But it was from the depths of an ocean of what we have called unutterable agony, out of an impenetrable darkness, that that terrible cry came. We can do no more than simply bow our heads in the presence of divine mystery. It is the work of our salvation that is being enacted. What it cost him, we shall never, never know. What we do know is that he finished the work. For shortly afterwards, we are told by Matthew that he uttered another loud cry. And John tells us that the words were, It is finished. And then having finished the work of our salvation, he gave up his life. Now, note this, Satan didn't kill him. He gave himself up. And later on, the, uh, another one of the Gospel writers tells us that Pilate was very surprised when he found that Christ had died. When the soldiers came to break the legs um, of, of, of the victims, uh, they found that Christ was already dead. So they did not break his legs. And when Joseph of Arimathea went to inquire and ask for the body of the Lord, Pilate asked the centurion, is it really true that he's died already? Oh, yes. Christ didn't, the Satan didn't kill Christ. He laid down his life. When he had endured and when he had finished the work of our salvation, then he gave himself up. And only then. Now what happened in those six hours, we don't know. All we know is that he plumbed the depths of hell. All we know is that he exhausted the armory of Satan. All we know is that he allowed the whole, the whole, as it were, power and might of Satan to gather in all its force. All we know is that all the sin that this world has ever known was placed on him. Now, my dear friend, I suppose if you were to go down home and sit down and think, your sin might be weighty enough. And if we were to take just the sin that's in this room, that would be weighty enough. If we were to take the sin of this country today, tonight, alone, it would be weighty enough. When we realize that it was all sin, the sin of the world, you understand why the gospel writers are so reticent. 
they just, they just give us the facts. They sum the whole thing up in these words, and there they crucified him. And Matthew just says, about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? About 3 p.m., God <coughs> died. He'd finished the work of our salvation. Now, my dear friend, we come to the end of this study in which we have only scratched the circumference of something so tremendous. But I want to end dwelling upon those matchlessly simple words. It is finished. If all hell had been let loose, if Satan had done his work, if God had forsaken his son, if the heavens themselves had withdrawn their light, let us never forget that as that shout of triumph, of divine triumph, pierced the gloom, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was the first and only time such a thing had ever happened. And it has never been refuted by Jewish authorities. What a shock for Caiaphas. What a shock for Annas. What a shock for those chief priests when they went back into the holy place and saw there shredded the veil, the sacred veil that divided the most holy place from the holy place. That veil was the symbol of an alienation from God. It was the symbol of an impossible gulf between God and man, the holy God and sinful mankind. It, it, it was as it were, the symbol of a barrier that existed between God and this world, which was impenetrable. Now it was removed in a single minute of time. I don't know, I've often wondered if there was any priest moving around on his duties, tending to the lights, looking at the showbread table, stoking up the altar of incense. Suddenly, whoosh, the thing was torn in two. What a shock for the man. A priest, he'd never seen the holy place. There, for the first time, was the holy place, ex the most holy place, exposed to view. From top to bottom. Who said it was from top to bottom? Some priest must have got converted. For no one ever went in there. Someone knew that it was from the top to the bottom. Did someone see it? How did they know that it was torn, 
from the top to the bottom, unless those hands had ripped it and it had fallen as it were. What we do know is that they symbolise that that impossible gulf was spanned. What we know is that that barrier, it symbolised the barrier was removed. What we know is this, that God was, as it were, standing there with his arms wide open to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. It was... If we put it this way, it was as if the cherubim, who up to that point had guarded the way to the tree of life, lest any man should take of it and live forever, suddenly become ushers to the tree of life. Have you ever noticed the difference? When you see them in the book of Genesis, they're guarding the way to the tree of life. There they were, inscribed in gold thread upon the veil of the temple. Great cherubim! which guarded the way into the holy place of all. But when we look into the book of Revelation, what do we find? We find the four living ones, the cherubim again. And what are they doing? They're worshipping the Lord and leading an innumerable multitude in their worship. That great song, Worthy is the Lamb, to receive the power and the honour and the dominion and the glory. They're leading them in their worship. What has happened to the cherubim? They who had guarded the tree from sinful man were now leading sinners saved by the grace of God. Something had happened. What had happened? The way into the holiest of all had been made open by the blood of Jesus. No wonder, no wonder that there was an earthquake. It was as if God put his hands under the globe and shook it. It was as if with an invisible hammer he split the rocks open. Tombs burst open. Dead saints arose and went into the city of Jerusalem and appeared to many. The centurion and the guard were awed. And even the people who had watched the whole sorry spectacle from beginning to end, Luke tells us, smote their breasts and went home in deep mourning. Something that was to reach to the farthest extent of the universe had happened. Those words, it is finished. What do they mean? They mean this. The battle has been fought and won. The work of our so great salvation has been finished, accomplished. They speak of a complete redemption, not just for your spirit, but for your soul and for your body. One day there's going to be a miracle when all those bodies that have returned to dust are reformed. The redemption of the body. It is a complete and a full redemption. And it all goes back to those words, finished. It is finished. But oh, much more. 
Those words speak of the precious blood that will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God is be saved to sin no more. It speaks of the kingdom of heaven opened to saved sinners such as you and me. They speak of Satan utterly and completely defeated and forever. They speak of the earth and its fullness being reclaimed for the Lord. When one day the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Those words speak of the coming kingdom and the coming glory. Well, I am sorry if I have been unable to really give to you more of what happened on Calvary. All I can say is that there Christ did something so infinite that in eternity without him you and I will never fully comprehend it. Dear child of God, never forget that your salvation, to purchase your salvation, cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. Six hours of infinite agony. Six hours of infinite cost. But my dear friend, six hours of infinite triumph. Infinite triumph. If the Lord Jesus hadn't settled this issue in the garden, could he have gone through with it? When those taunts came to him, if thou art the Son of God, come down. Come down. He saved others himself. He cannot save. I don't think he could have gone through with it. No, the fact of the matter is that the Lord Jesus Christ had settled the issue and he went through with it. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? Oh, my dear friend, what is that joy? Do you think the Lord's joy was to sit on a throne? People seem to think the Lord's rather egocentric. She wants to sit on a throne and sort of be glorified and sort of uh, fast over. Not at all. The joy that was set before him was your salvation. Your salvation. That was the joy that was set before him. When he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. What does that mean? When he sees himself formed in you. When he sees you torn from out of the power of darkness and translated into his kingdom. When he sees you growing up into his likeness. When he sees you being conformed to his own image. Then he sees the travail of his soul and is 
satisfied. The travail of his soul wasn't just some deep and terrible emotion. The travail of his soul was six hours of infinite suffering. He sees the issue of that when he sees you and I saved. And when he sees the gospel going to the far ends of the earth and from every tongue and kindred and nation and people a redeemed people being brought out, saved by his blood, the joy that was set before him. My dear friend, you and I are his inheritance, his joy, his crown, his glory. I cannot understand what the Lord suffered on the cross for me. It makes me marvel when I think that there on the tree he suffered for me. What did he see in me? Why should he go to such lengths to save me? Better to start, I would have thought, all over again with a kind, a, a sinless material than to try and retrieve me and save me and keep me and one day bring me to himself in exceeding joy. And yet, the glory of it is that he set his love upon us. And who can explain away love? How can you explain love? When someone loves someone else, we sometimes can't understand it. We say, what does he see in her? Or what does she see in him? <coughs> And we think, isn't it beautiful? <laughs> I mean, I, I must say, I think it's extraordinary. Why do they care for each other? They look, no, so ill-assorted, so strange. You can't explain love, can you? Love can't be put under a microscope and analysed. How can you explain those wonderful words in the Old Testament? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Which are a root of God's election. How can you explain them? Why our minds are baffled and overwhelmed by it. All I know is this. He has set his love upon. And he was prepared to suffer to save us and win us and keep us. I will close with a story which you won't find in the notes at all. Many, many years ago, there was a young Hungarian nobleman who was living a dissolute life. And I think it was in Munich or somewhere in Nuremberg, somewhere in Germany, southern Germany, he went into an art gallery. And as he was carelessly walking through the gallery, he saw a picture 
it was a picture of the crucifixion of Christ that was all and he was arrested by the picture underneath it had the words behold the man he stopped he looked he went on but he couldn't get away from it he went back and he spent the whole day sitting opposite that picture. Underneath the words, Behold the man, were written, All this I have done for you. What hast thou done for me? By the end of that day, that young nobleman was converted. His name was Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And it was through him that God set Europe ablaze and started the missionary movement that is still going strong today. Those Moravian missionaries, they took the gospel to the hardest and most terrible parts of the earth. Where did it all begin? It began on the day when a young, dissolute, careless nobleman saw what Christ had done for him. Have you ever seen what Christ has done for you? We sing about it, we talk about it, we preach about it. But I sometimes wonder whether it ever really dawned on us. If it did, there would be no more moaning, and no more murmuring, and no more complaint, and no more grudging, dutiful service. Our heart would be a pean of worship and praise. And we would be free from ourselves to serve the Lord. May he help us in our understanding. Now, dear Lord, <coughs> Only thy Holy Spirit can really reveal to us <coughs> what happened on that cross. We know, Lord, we shall never fully understand, but oh, for an understanding of something of what thou didst pay for us, for a dawning upon every one of us of the cost of our salvation, of what it meant to thee the Holy One, to bear away our sin. Lord, we pray by thy Spirit, enlighten every single one of us, and may we, Lord, be brought to thy feet in a new way, in worship, in adoration, in thanksgiving. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.